0: Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honoured to have as my guest, Brad Merritt, best known as bass player for the iconic Canadian band 5440. We'll be talking about music and travels and the business of music and the life of a career entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. So thanks for joining me today, Brad. How are you?
1: I'm just fine, and it's been my pleasure.
0: So, uh, so what's the deal with the, I usually ask people like every, every kid, you know, especially growing up at the time that we did in this, in the sixties and seventies, I guess, in and into the early eighties, every, every other kid picked up an instrument or played something and, and wanted to be in a band. It was a really cool thing to do. So what, what was your path? How did you come about that?
1: Yeah. So it, a very similar thing. Um, you know, uh, I, I was, you know, very, very young. Uh, you know, when when the Beatles, you know, played the Ed Sullivan show. Mm-hmm. I can't say I really remember that, but I, 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 maybe I do in some sort of level. And, uh, you know, my mother was quite musical. She, she uh, you know, plays piano by ear and all that kind of stuff. So um, I uh, had an interest in music all the way along and, uh, you know, played in a school band and all that kind of stuff that we all do. Yeah, uh, took took piano lessons, and uh, uh, but thought you know that's it's it's not something that I can do. It, in music, in the seventies, became kind of less and less ex- more esoteric and less accessible. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, yeah. there was more a lot of prog rock and and uh, jazz uh, fusion and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then uh, punk rock came along, and I went. I love this I love the whole thing about it. I love the energy I love the I love the look I love the attitude yep. and and then I also said I can do that 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 I can do and be a part of and I really wanted to do that. We had a great scene here in Vancouver absolutely and yep and I was anxious to to, to be involved in that not just as a as a, a you know person who attended shows and all that kind of stuff, but actually as a player yeah. and was able to uh, you know convince Neil to come along with me.
0: Yeah, well, that's cool. It, it, because it's always curious to me, you know. Like it was an exciting time. There's lots of fun bands, and you get to goof around and hang out with your buddies and stuff. But how did you come to the point where you decide to pursue a career? Like, did you have a defining moment or some kind of break that you thought, "Well, I can do something with this more than just goofing around with my friends"?
1: Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> sort of, it was. It was a pretty gradual thing, right? Okay. It was uh, a. Yeah. It, it was an evolution. Um, you know, as far as I could see, you know, Neil and I going was, we just, I just wanted to open for a band at the Commodore ballroom. Okay. You know, yeah. Make our $150 <laughs> open for, you know, one of these bands that we loved, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, the local band would have been like the subhumans or the young Canadians or would have been, you know, like, you know, Echo and the bunny or yeah. the buzzcocks or whoever's coming through. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: And, uh, so uh, we ended up doing a, a a thing in 1982. It was like a, a four bands that were kind of on the local scene and we were one of the four bands. Mm. So we, we kind of, we kind of blew through that and then we opened for other bands at the, at the Commodore after that. Yeah. And uh, you know, and also we started to make records and uh, independent yeah. records and, yeah. and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that Neil and I uh, determined you know early on is that you know you, you could actually determine whether or not you're going to be in a band on a day-to-day gig by gig basis and I, I thought that was kind of no way to sort of you know to exist so mm. i said why don't we just decide right now we're going to do 10 records you know come hell yeah. or high water you know and uh, he goes yeah i am in." Mean, and he, that's what he loves to do i mean he loves to create and uh Yeah. Yeah, He needs a a project. Right. So, so, you know, we'd get these big, you know, you do a show and and you get all deflated afterwards because, you know, there's nothing on the horizon. So we'd always say, well, if there was nothing there after us, we'd get together and start to write songs for the next record, blah, 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 blah. So that's how that kind of works. So, so it, like I say, it was a gradual evolution. Neil and I both had day jobs and, and uh, you know, if if the thing hadn't worked out, we'd probably still be doing those.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I often ask people, you know, like, did you have a plan or did it kind of evolve? And it sounds like you're kind of 50, 50, you sort of had a plan and it sort of evolved as you were executing that sort of plan. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so, so the, exactly. And this is, you know, this is part of my personal philosophy. I always have a plan. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean we're going to follow it or it's going to work out that way <laughs> but yeah. you always have a plan yeah. so yeah there's 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 no defining moment i mean you know a few years after that we signed to warner brothers and did three records with them and, and it kind, yeah. kind of took off from there but even at that point it's still quite tenuous i mean you know while you're signed to a major label and you know you're selling records and you're touring in the van and all that kind of stuff you're still not making a living at it people don't yeah. realize that yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah for sure no well that's and and the thing is with you guys i mean uh, as i went through your timeline and your history and stuff i mean you guys paid your dues right when you first started out like set the fire and, and yeah. broken pieces like you did that broken pieces uh video that's black and white video that looks like it was on the beach in towasan is that right uh white rock or, and white was. rock okay yeah yeah yeah
1: Yeah, you know, we also did another video for for what to do now on that yeah which actually got a little bit of play on much music as it started you know in one of their independent shows.
0: Yeah. Well, cause you guys came up at a time when videos were important, right? So obviously you didn't have the budget for, for some big videos, but you still had to to do something. You had to get something together, right?
1: Yeah. So, so that's right. We did, we recorded, uh, set the fire in 1983 and yeah. then released it in January of 84 and spent, you know, the next kind of year and a half playing, you know, everywhere we could to promote that, which was, you know, kind of as far East as Winnipeg and as far south as los angeles yeah um so and that was kind of our kind of the corridors the two corridors that we worked yeah um and you know we were getting not much attention in in canada from major labels a lot of you know some very mean <laughs> rejection letters <laughs> oh and, yeah of course <laughs> and, and some some very very kind and, yeah. and supportive uh but we we're getting lots of interest in the united states and so we kept on going down there and until until we
0: ended up signing with Warner brothers. So, well, how did that happen? Because I mean, a lot of bands from Canada, you know, typically sign a Canadian record deal and don't go the other route. So your, yours cause was the opposite experience.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, actually we, we recorded by many, uh, major labels down there. Um it was it was a far more aggressive record scene uh, right. you know there was it was it was far more uh, competitive right it was canada we were it was kind of a still a branch plant kind of way of looking at things and you were trying to get something that was safe that had the potential to you know go into other markets and we were far from that i mean we were hmm. we we had no polish <laughs> yeah. you know and we came from kind of a punk rock a post punk you know whatever you want to call that new wave or whatever kind of background independent yeah. music anyway and uh and they had a lot more time for that down there they were signing bands that were kind of you know like us you know and uh so we actually had we were set to go with uh capital emi and uh down there and uh you know what happened is it it was actually nixed by the uh (laughs) <laughs> the president of the Canadian company. and you know we're going to sign those guys. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and then we, have you know, kind of moved around to, uh, to, to everyone else. And then finally Warner Brothers, you know, this, they, when they made that call up to Canada, you know, uh, WEA said, absolutely. They're great. We yeah. love them. Let's do it. Right. So, okay. so,
0: so had they seen happened. you? What was it from the videos, the recordings that you'd already done or the live shows that you were. That
1: yeah. they're. Done? I mean, they were familiar with our stuff because like I said, it would, it had all gone out to, uh, um, yeah. You know every record company in Canada, and like I said, we we, we you, you you start corresponding with the A and R people and other people yeah. in these companies, and a lot of them are say like you know keep us surprised of what you're doing, right? It's like yeah. we're you know, and so those those are the encouraging ones, and that's the kind of stuff that can keep you going, you know? Um, yeah. So, uh, although, you know, I got to say that I derived a lot of energy from the negative
0: ones too. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, some guys frame them and put them on the wall. They put their rejection letters on the wall because it's a motivator, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So that's what, so yeah. So it worked both ways for us. I think I'm probably more that way and and Neil needed more encouragement.
0: (laughs) Well, I guess. Yeah. But again, you know, you guys had already elevated yourself to a certain status. And I talked to a manager one time and he said, well, you have to have something to manage. You have to show me what you've already done. Yeah. You know, yeah. it has to be somewhat substantial, like do some videos, do some recording, like pay your dues and then we'll see what yeah. we can do for you. And you guys certainly did that from looking at your timeline.
1: Yeah, no, there's no question about that. And actually our manager got involved with us fairly early, hmm. uh, Alan Moy uh, and Keith Porteus, where they, they were a partnership to start with. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, Alan, uh, he actually was the producer uh, on, uh, Set the fire and he he was into making kind of independent albums and he played in a, very, a variety of Vancouver kind of punk rock slash new wave bands whatever you want to call them right. and uh so he helped us make this record, which we're you know extremely proud of and uh uh you know i think Keith convinced alan's like you know he, he, you know you got to take some responsibility for the success of this thing let's yeah. let's why don't we just manage these guys and and see what we can do and that's when we started to play you know into California,
0: yeah, nice. Yeah. So then the other question I had is you know when you sign with a major label like that especially in the US I mean that's a whole different world now right you're in a you're in a different universe did you get assigned a producer did you were you able to self produce or co-produce how did that Yeah work? so
1: that's a good question so uh you know we w- w- after we did set the fire we that was 84 we spent kind of the summer of 85 uh kind of uh sort of the kind of late spring writing and then recording what would become the green, the green record hmm. yeah. uh, with uh, baby ran and I go blind and other songs. Yeah. And uh, so we had kind of lost energy on doing the whole independent thing. It's like, you know, we love what we do, but let's see if we can get somebody else involved. So <laughs> we don't have to do all the work yes. as well as everything else that you have to do. Yeah. And uh, so when we signed a Warner brothers, uh, in the spring of 86, uh, we already had this thing recorded and mixed. Um, yeah. and they said, yeah, we, we, we love the recording. We, we just, we think that it could use a remix. So we got to Dave Jordan to do it, who had just, he was, uh, he's best known for engineering, a bunch of great records. He did, you know, that uh, marquee moon by television. And he did, mm-hmm. uh, Uh, Remain in Light by by uh, Talking Heads and you know so he 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 knew how to do this you know he'd worked with Brian Eno and yeah and so he did this great great mix and Neil flew down for the mixes and so that's that's essentially what it is it's still a very independent sounding record yeah but it's just got that kind of you know kind of sheen to it that you know that was happening at the time
0: which is fair enough because they could have asked you to re-record it or assigned you a producer and really kind of turned the band inside out right.
1: Yeah, which is what they tried to do the next time.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, you know, uh, which we just, we got Jordan to produce and By that time he had already, he'd produced, he just produced the Beat Farmers record and uh, he he was moving from engineering to producing. And, okay. uh, yeah. and uh, so we had a relationship with him and it was great. I mean, he, we learned a lot from him. You know, it's not my favorite mm-hmm. sounding record that we ever did, but it certainly had a, uh, you know, an, enough success to keep going. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah, it's is one thing have to do.
0: And the one thing about you guys that, uh, that, you know, I've, I went through your catalog, of course, I couldn't listen to every album you have so much, but I did listen to a bunch of stuff, but you have that straight ahead sparse kind of good production sound and you've managed to keep that fairly consistent. Like you kind of know what you want and you kind of get it and it's not overproduced. It's not synthetic sounding. Like you have that rootsy kind of, sparse i don't know if i'm using the right words but yeah
1: i, I totally get it it's it's it, yeah it's it, it is that i mean it's so you know and then this is we used to have these uh back in the early days uh you know keith and alan would, would host these little talks with the band you know and we called it kind of kind of rock rock uh you know rock school 101 kind of right. thing and uh you know, he says, your part part of the secret is, you know, you, have, you kind of have to embrace your limitations, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. And rather than sort of rail against it and try to make, you know, the 48 track, uh, you know, Tusk record or something, yeah. uh, you know, not, it, would, it would, wouldn't be good and it wouldn't be authentic. And so uh, I, I think we've, we kind of uh, leaned into that uh, a lot. And, and then we knew that we were going to grow naturally as, as musicians and as a band Mm-hmm. And things would evolve. And so we kind of had a, a faith in that. And yeah, I think you're right. I think this, the, the recordings kind of stand the test of time. I mean, they still are played, you know, on recurrent all over Canada. And, you know, I Go Blinds played all over the world. And,
0: oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: And it it, it's, it still sounds good, right? It's, yep. um, it's whereas, you know, other stuff, you know, it kind of goes in and out. You know, I mean, like the 80s can come back and then they can go away or whatever again or whatever the sound is of the day. But yeah, this kind of sounds like something which... Yeah.
0: Well, that's the last. and you bring out the combination of the punk and the new wave and and that because some of those '80s records, like you can put them on and within ten seconds you know almost to the year what year that was recorded, right? Because yeah,
1: and we that. and we bounced we bounced around a little bit. I think we became you know less enthralled with the new technology as yeah. things went on and and uh, you know by the time we got around to since when you know it was a very uh, natural organic kind of thing you know where yeah. it's we're trying we're, we're fooling around with kind of retro timeless sounds
0: right. you know yeah which i think i think that served you well because i mean some of the 80s sounds like the reverse cymbals and the snare drums that sound like a garbage can lid and stuff i mean it's just <laughs> unbelievable
1: well you know it's funny you know we it's i can't remember what year it was it was the 30th anniversary or or so or whatever of of, um, of the green record and so i said well i'll just go back and listen to it and I was surprised at how kind of goopy and wet it sounded because we didn't record it that yeah. way. But that was <laughs> that was Jordan's mix, right? And, it, and no. the reverb out drums and yes, yeah. And I went, right. "Oh my god, yeah." So uh, yeah. we we kind of and the other thing that we do creatively is that we tend to react. To what we just did you know yeah. so we, we're kind of you know so even though we're forging our own path and we have this you know we have this kind of natural sound that we do we oscillate back and forth between you know the extremes within those limitations and yeah, i think right. that served us well too to create yeah, no, these different, different kinds of records
0: yeah. it's a good point too because you're not trying to be yes you're not trying to be you know uh, something you're not, which is authentic, I think is a good word that you used. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's funny because Murray McLaughlin said that about the 80s. He said, I can't even listen to some of those albums. It, the, the sound guys, if it was on the rack, it was on the track, was their <laughs> philosophy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Totally. <laughs> totally. Funny. So yeah,
0: then I, have yeah. to, I have to ask you about the videos. I, I watched the video for uh, One Day in Your Life, and the, that's the old street scenes. You got the old Vancouver City Hall in there and stuff, too. But that. Yeah that still doesn't look like a high budget video, right? Was that yeah, a record so, company video?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's, that's uh, the first. Oh, so yeah. Second Warner brothers record yeah. uh, show me. Yeah. We, we, they, what they did for a band like us is that you had a low budget video and you did get somebody that was, you know, that was, could work with that budget. Right. Um, you know, usually someone who just graduated from film school or, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was a young thing rather than, than yeah. an older thing. And uh, yeah, and so you work, once again, they were embracing their limitations. So it fit perfectly with what, what we were trying yeah. to do.
0: Yeah cuz i mean some of the budgets were were exorbitant right i mean some of the bands spent ridiculous amounts of money and then the one gun video so you you were on much music with that that looks like a bigger budget video did the did the record company come up with some money for that
1: No i'd say that was less less money
0: Was it Okay
1: yeah i'd say it was less what? money than that um yeah I, I mean it's you know the i guess I, i'm going to guess that there were th- thirty thousand dollar u.s okay. budgets okay. which so, right now would be which would be huge now
0: <laughs> yeah no, that's that's substantial i mean the, the record company like back then again at that time for that 10 15 year period you had to, any song you were going to put out you had to have a video with it right yeah okay.
1: and, the, and the way record companies usually worked is that the first video was that that and then they would give you less you know for the second and third song right. kind of okay. thing is the way worked.
0: Yep. yeah yeah, and then that all comes off your recoupable money that you have to pay back, I guess, right? So yeah,
1: ab- absolutely. You you know it well. Yeah. yeah,
0: well, I've I've heard the stories from a lot of people and uh, been peripherally involved in it myself to a certain extent. But uh, so then the other question I had about one gun: Did you like purposely have a political or social message in your songs? Was that something that was a, a factor when you were writing and, and producing songs?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not not every song. Yeah, as Neil Neil says quite often, you know, kind of almost every song we do is a love song of of sorts, right? right? Yeah. And that is, one gun is a love song too, um, and it's uh, at a time when his his uh, eventual eventual uh, wife, so it's uh, you know uh, they're romantically involved, and she goes off to South America to you know document all these uh, atrocities which were happening in, mm. in the nineteen eighties. Yeah. uh, disappearances and, 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 uh, so he's wondering, well, uh, she may not come back. And this is, you know, it's, a, it, and, and why, why is this, the, there this danger? So he goes from, you know, um, the specific to the general, the specific in the, in the verses, which is, you know, the state of their relationship and, you know, where he, how he's feeling. And then the, the one gun thing, which is this, this is what is, is the cause of my, my, uh, my angst. Uh, yeah. And yeah. So, so, you know, it's not like it's, you know, it's obviously a political song, you know, and yeah. Neil, Neil really leans into that now live too. So with, yeah. Uh, with, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, it's not that like we're like a, you know, political all the time or anything else like that, but, you know, we certainly have a point of view and a stance.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because you know some bands, like I years ago, I listened to Casey and the Sunshine Band, and he basically said, "I just wanted to have fun songs for people to dance to. That's all I cared about." And other bands feel, you know, like the Bruce Coburns and those people feel like, you know, I need to have a social yeah. message here to what I'm doing to, to make a, a bigger difference than just singing songs that people have, that tickle their ears. I need to say something more than that, right?
1: Right. Yeah. So i um, i th- I would say that. Uh, it's more about following, uh, you know, the muse wherever it, wherever it takes you mm-hmm. from song to song. Yeah. And you know, I cast no aspersions on KC and Sunshine Band just wanting to play party music. I said, good for them, you know. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. as far as Bruce Cobert's concerned, I absolutely love him. Well, so, sure. yeah. so, yeah, so, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> those are the opposite ends of the spectrum, I suppose. If you're looking for a, a comparison or the continuum, right? So,
1: yeah, I think I think you yeah I think yeah. you nailed it.
0: Yeah, and then so so you did the, you got the U S deal, but that kind of went away. So is it fair to say at this point, you're, you're essentially a Canadian band. I mean, the, the U S market, you guys, you had your, your time there, you took a ride there, but then you lost that record deal and came back to Canada. Is that what happened?
1: Yeah, more, more or less. Um, we, we, we uh, we did three records with them Yeah. and, uh, uh, it, you know, it just wasn't, happening for either one of us you know they it's it's what happens you know it's very hard to explain this because this personality is involved and uh careers for people in 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 the record company and you know we're obviously trying to establish ourselves and so it was kind of a mutual kind of thing it's like you know maybe we just kind of you know move along so, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And uh, so then we, we would shed it for a year. Um, Warner Brothers released uh, kind of a greatest hits package called Sweeter Things in Canada, which, you know, just uh, sold a lot of copies. Yeah. So quite and we knew that people were interested in our music and we knew that, you know, we had more ahead of us. So we just decided, like I said, we we're going to do 10 records and we'd already done you know four at that time so we had six yeah. more to go, there you go. so <laughs> yeah yeah and so and there was interest in, in definitely um uh on the canadian side because you know uh we had had a gold record with the show me record and um you know uh we had some more songs that we were able to shop around people said yeah i can see how this you know could go again
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so we, we signed to sony music canada
0: yeah, so that that's what I was going to ask. Like, was that a, a Canadian deal or a world, worldwide deal? I mean, obviously, you get distribution worldwide, anyways, right? Yeah,
1: that's what that's what it is. So it's a it's a Canadian thing, and then they they shop at territory territory. Yeah. So and, and we 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 would get uh, releases in you know uh, kind of obscure countries, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but it was mostly a Canadian thing, and we did go to Europe. Uh, uh several times oh, on nice. the record. We got, got got UK releases on all the Sony records and toured yeah. the UK and we went all around Europe once with Midnight Oil and um, cool. you know, sold records in Sweden and, you know, other countries. But
0: Very cool. um
1: yeah. It worked out. It was a great thing for us.
0: Yeah, no, that's neat. And of course the U S market is, 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 fickle and it's kind of a blood sport too, right? It's like, what have you done for me lately? And, and as things shift at the record companies, lots of bands have told me stories where their guy left the record company and there was just no interest and no big checks being written. I mean, that down there, like Ian Thomas said, you gotta, you gotta pay money to get your songs played. Yeah. It's just oh, two ways well, about it.
1: Right? Oh, let me tell So, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Um, and I don't, I don't want to get too inside baseball because, you know, when you first sort of brought this up about, you know, people leaving and all that kind of stuff, like there's just countless stories of that. And it's, and it's like, I don't, I'm not going to, you know, get into all the in the weeds to, to explain all those things, the factors that why things happened or didn't happen. But when we released the green record, uh, it was scheduled for release in June of 1986. And we just released the single uh baby ran. It was getting, uh, uh, kind of medium rotation on, um, what's this MTV down there. Yeah. And, and so things are starting to happen for us. And then I don't, I don't know if you recall this, I don't know how old you are, Dan, but, uh, there was called the, it was called the independent promotion, uh, uh, scandal. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, and it was one of these, you know, American news magazines that, that, that did this program about how, our songs get played on the radio in the United States yes. and, and yep. uh, yeah, independent record promotion, IRP, that's what it is. Yeah. And so uh, the uh, records uh, you, ha- I'll just put it, say it the way it is. Pe- people, record companies wouldn't involve themselves with this because essentially it's, it's, uh, you know, bribery. <laughs> it's yeah. illegal. Yeah. That's um, right. So yeah. they, so they would contract it out to third parties. Yeah. So that's how they got record.
0: around the payola scandal.
1: Yeah, yeah. the like book hitman. Yeah. I read the book Hitman, that's, and that's yeah. That's, that's so. That's exactly it. Yeah. So we were right there. Yeah. So so what happened was so once that was broken open, record company said, "Well, we can't promote records that way anymore. We'll have to put have in in house record promotion." But our record slated to come out the next month. The TV shows in May. Our mm. records coming out in June. So the record got no promotion at radio. Right. Yeah. We didn't even have college radio promotion. Right. Wow. So it was. Um, So we did the best we could, uh, and it did really well, I mean, considering the situation. But So there was no chance that, you know, A Baby Ran or I Go Blind was going to get the attention that it needed to get uh, on radio down there. In fact, you know, um, the uh, record company just kind of shut down promotion after the first single. I Go Blind never even became a single down uh, in the United States. So, Which
0: which is a bit of a travesty because could have had a split made a splash anyways right
1: I, I think there's no question about it i mean it obviously made a splash with hootie and the blowfish <laughs> yeah yeah there
0: you go exactly and then but they would have had the machine the record company machine behind them when they did it right
1: yeah yeah so that's right well, and the, well the thing is uh, uh, ironically uh, uh you know it was never released as a single by us it was never released as a single by then hmm. but became a de-, de facto single when when radio was actually looking for a Hootie and blowfish track and that's the one they glommed onto because yeah. it was on the friends soundtrack the tv yeah. show so yeah, right. and it became a huge huge hit down there and you know we felt quite gratified by all that but you know it would have been nice if, uh, if you know either the independent promotion or radio uh, record promotion scandal hadn't happened yeah. in May or or if they happened earlier and they had you know in-house promotions set up when, yeah. when our record came out. So this is these are the kind of the, the vagaries of the business that that I think people you know uh who are the people either know or you don't know or, or you yeah. know the, the people have to understand that it happens all the time. That's in any business but the thing is with, with, with anything in, you know, art, culture, whatever, you, you only have this sort of limited time frame and then, yeah. then it just sort of evaporates. So it either happens or it doesn't. And it just didn't happen for us to the degree that we'd hoped for down there.
0: Yeah, fair enough. And and again, they, maybe people on the outside looking in think, well, you just write a good song and you record it, you just splash a video together. And, think, and that's just not the way it works. There's so many factors involved in in getting a band to where they need to be and where they might want to be. And, and a lot of it involves the big record machine and the big checks that they're writing to make things happen the way they need to happen.
1: So I, you couldn't put it any better. So the way you just mentioned is exactly the way I thought, all you got to do is make a great record, you know, make a great video and tour, and it's all going to happen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was very naive, you know, okay, I was 26 yeah. years old and, 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 um, uh, and then, but I, but we learned, we learned quickly, Dan.
0: No, yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. So you and I would be similar age. So I, I grew up in the sixties and seventies and was a musician, yeah. been a musician my whole life. So, so then you came back to Canada, you regrouped, you put out Sheila and, and ocean Pearl came out and you had to, so you, and obviously yeah. those videos, like, like the, the Sheila video is, is a concept video and yeah. nice to love you is a, I like the bass intro and nice to love you too. That's very, again, great production. So what yeah, what was yeah. the deal with all that? You must have had some money behind that because the production's great, and you did the yeah, concept so, videos, which cost a few dollars, right?
1: Yeah, so Sony was. We were one of their three big acts, right? Mm. It was yeah. uh, us, us, Celine Dion, and and uh, Leonard Cohen. Yeah, nice, there you go. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah, we 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 recorded that record down the first record, uh, Dear Dear, in Los Angeles with Don Smith, who had just done the tragically hip, one of yeah. one of their two records anyway. Nice. And uh he, you know, it was perfect. I mean, like I say, it sounds really good. Um, and yeah, that this record took off in Canada. It ended up, you know, platinum, et cetera. And yeah. Yeah, we were well on our way again. And um yeah, I can say the videos, I mean, you know, and getting, you know, back to the to the politics and point of view, I mean Sheila's a a very, you know, pointed song about a uh, relationship gone bad and yep and uh uh what you call it? spousal abuse and retribution mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and what all of that means and so yeah it's a it's a story and um you know, whereas "Nice to Love You" is exactly the opposite. You know? Yeah, right. I, was, I, I call it a big, a big dumb rock song, and I've got nothing yeah. against those too. So.
0: Yeah, it's funny with the video because I know I talked to Alfie Zappacosta about his video. You know, and, and and you get this concept video and stuff. And the "Nice to Love You" video, I, I kind of thought the same thing. Like you got the chastity belts and the key. You know, that's it's a bit of it's a bit of an odd <laughs> video. And, and looking back, do you think the concept videos, some of them worked, and some of them were kind of odd.
1: Yeah. And putting on the giant condoms.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, yeah. It's too so, weird. yeah.
1: So that, that's the, that's the same guy that did the uh, one day in your life video. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm sure he's you know, doing uh, whatever commercials in LA now. Uh, and he was great. And he was, he was, he, he was a conceptual thinker and, yeah. and uh it was it was those are fun videos to, to make
0: yeah well that's what i was thinking like like when the band, like because alfie said that like the one where they got the, the the strippers jello wrestling and stuff he said he's embarrassed to even but he said the the, <laughs> the guy comes in he's got the concept he's got the money you know he's got the budget and they go okay you're gonna do this and you're gonna do that and then the band's kind of going uh, okay um I guess so did you guys have any input into that or did you get to discuss it or did he just
1: yeah so so yeah neil is very much involved in, okay. in that stuff with uh uh and we what what happens is you know you you would put it out you know they're gonna do a song and then you would get these what are called treatments from various people that were that are you know that want to make the video for you and then you sort of gravitate towards the treatment you know the one that you like and yeah. then you work with them to sort of flesh it out a little bit um and you know we 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 uh, you know, knew, uh, it were, I, I slightly resented the fact that, you know, you had to do these things because, you know, I grew up in an era where, where it was about the sound and less about, yeah. about the look, but so we were well aware that, that this was important. It was a visual medium, you know, playing, you know, rock and roll in the eighties and nineties. And, uh, so we just, we played ball and, and we, we got into it. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. And it, again, with the concept videos, like they, they got criticized later because you're interpreting the song in a sense for the listener. And, and like you said, the audio is what drives it. I mean, when you listen to AM radio in the sixties and seventies, it's the song that means everything. The video yes, okay. You watch the guy sing the song, but it's the song.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's the video killed the radio star, but the other one that was some English satire thing, it's, you know, nice video, shame about the song. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And there was a lot of that out there where it was like, you know, they spent $300,000 on the video and it was an amazing thing. Yeah. There's not much song there, right? So right,
0: it's like a mini movie in a sense. Yeah. So yeah. So then you and you got Ocean Pearl and all these these other great songs. So what, what was your what was your biggest song? The one that you liked the best, or the one that did the best for the band?
1: Yeah, I mean, it comes down to uh, Ocean Pearl, I Go Blind, and One Day in Your Life. You know, right. that's kind yeah. of the, the triumvirate there, right there. Yeah. And then and then you have you know another eight or nine songs that. That you have to play at every
0: show. Right. Yeah. Fair <laughs> because
1: right. because they're they're big hits in, in their own right. And um uh yeah, and then we just yeah. yeah. So that's so I there's I don't really have a favorite song. Uh, and I think it like does it does move around, you mm-hmm. know. Um yeah. and it it all depends on how you're feeling, you know. Sometimes yeah. it's Sheila and sometimes it's sometimes it's not.
0: <laughs> and a couple of things I noticed about your your songs. One one thing about you guys and, and there's certain songs that you have that the in, intros tend to go on for a long time like 30 seconds plus i heard a record producer one time he said well you got it you got to be to the to the hook to the payoff by within 60 seconds you got one song you haven't even started singing within 60 seconds yet you have very yeah long so episodes.
1: yeah you know yeah what there, it was uh i can't remember who it was it was some guy that became a president of record company in the 50s or 60s and it was this thing was, uh, don't bore us get to the chorus yeah there you go
0: yeah
1: (laughs) so you know and i I see some value in that but not every song has to be that way yeah and um like even when we did uh the song since when uh on the album since when um you know and we had all those kind of retro sounds you know before the song was written you know we had the vibe and we had the little keyboard part with the the uh the working title was Ray Charles, right? It Hmm. was that kind of Rhodes kind of groovy R and B kind of thing going on. Uh, And so when we're kind of writing the song and recording it and it's like, do we actually do the whole progression before the vocals come in? Right. Or do we just, you know, do four bars and start singing the verse. Yeah. And it was either the producer, the engineer said, no, I think, I think people want to hear that, right? They want to hear that sort of 12 bar blues progression. And then, You know, and I, I don't, I, I don't know if, you know, one way or the other, that's, that's the decision you make in the, in the time and it's sort of of its time. And, and, uh, you know, each, however it works out is how it works out. And we're willing to live with however it works out.
0: Yeah. Fair point. I mean, some songs start with the chorus. They just sing the chorus right up front. Right.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So it it lies to me. That's (laughs) what we do. Yeah. 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 Uh, she loves you. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, that's, that works too. Right. It's, 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 you know, it's. Um, it's the, it's my favorite part of what we do, right. When we get together and write songs and that whole creative process and then hearing somebody else's idea and, and going, that's a, that's a great idea. Let's yeah. work with that. I, yeah. got, I that, that, that turns my crank, you know, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's cool. uh, yeah.
0: And you, you did, again, you have that organic sound, that stripped down sound, but you, you played around, like you had the trumpet in the band and you got some synths, any other instruments that you kind of brought in just to, to add flavor to the, to the recipe.
1: Yeah. Well, for instance, uh, uh, Neil's brother, uh, David, Dave Oz, David Osborne, he, he, he's played pretty much on every single record. It might be every single record we've ever done. Right. Except for maybe like a live record or whatever it was. And, uh, so now he's, he's essentially a member of the band. I mean, we played 95% of our shows with him. Yeah. And uh, and he's a mostly Hammond organ background vocal guy, but he can play everything, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, that's that's kind of a neat thing. So we, we're you know we like to like to flesh things out a little bit now, yeah. rather than sort of that bare bones thing um and it's nice you know it's yeah. it's uh it's just kind of where we're at and and uh, what we want to do
0: well and lots of the bands i mean look at van halen brought in keyboards and, and rush you know they had the taurus pedals and the keyboards i mean just to, to get a different just to expand the sound i guess you're still true yeah. to yourself but you're, you're expanding your sounds
1: yeah that's right exactly and yeah and that's that's exactly what it is, Dan.
0: Yeah, and then uh, the other thing I always asked about songwriters and, and bands like like you guys are, were really managed to stay true to your roots and your musical flavor. But you know, you got to be market driven, I guess, too. And professional songwriters, as you know, are brutal that way. Like they don't. I mean, it, it's problem to the people, man. Like whatever people yeah. buy, I don't care. Um, you guys must have <laughs> had some sort of balance there. What, how did you deal with that?
1: Uh, so I think the uh, the way I would answer that is that we just did our thing. And we, we'd hoped that if, you know, pers- it's the same way we do our live thing, which is if we're having fun and we like it, we expect other people to feel the same way. So it's just, and when, we're, when we're writing songs, it's that kind of thing. And then when you start to flesh these songs out, you can see that, well, this song has some commercial potential right? Yeah, right okay and so and you may or may not push it in that direction or you know what you perceive to be that direction you know because that doesn't always work out you know yeah. um, so and that's the way to rather than trying to to write hit songs we would just write you know 8 10 12 15 20 25 30 songs whatever and then you know you just you'd you'd, you'd holding that down to whatever you know 10 songs that that sort of represented you know where you were at that point and then you just hope that there'd be two or three songs on that record that you know people would gravitate towards and record companies managers etc agents
0: so, but the record company's coming at it from the opposite side. We want to sell pieces of plastic here. Like you, you, we like that song. We want ten more songs like that. And one of my buddies said, said that you know we I had a hit song, and then the record company called me up and said, well, we love that song. We want ten more songs like that. He goes, well, I'm not writing ten more songs like that. I mean, it's sort of like yeah. uh, you wear it well and Maggie May, right? Basically, the same song. Yeah, yeah. But you can see I the like record that, yeah. company would have said, hey, we Maggie May was a huge hit. You know, give us some more. Like, well, you wear it well is basically.
1: <laughs> the yeah. same
0: fl- flavor same feel yeah. same everything almost
1: yeah so uh, what i would say to that is that you know one of the things that really uh, appealed to us about about sony uh music uh when we signed to them was that they never put that kind of pressure
0: okay, on okay cool that's yeah nice and,
1: and they just never did they they had they had a lot of respect for the body of work that we had already created and, yeah. and kind of we kind of gave an the indication of kind of where we were going and they were really hands-off. They, they they gave us the money. We made the record. We delivered the record. And the same thing with the videos at nice. a certain point. They just, you know, they are almost hands-off on the video thing too. So... Um,
0: yeah, that's really I, nice. I, it's nice to hear yeah. that because um, I've heard so many stories about, you know, did you guys get caught up in the legal crap? Did you did you go through any legal sort of hassles and stuff? I've heard so many of those stories.
1: Yeah, so uh, we, we definitely... Uh, getting back to the to the uh, uh, rock 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 and roll one hundred and one classes that we used to, to take, we you know when we first signed a Warner Brothers, you know we spent pretty much a whole day with a lawyer going over the contract mm-hmm. and explaining mm-hmm. to us, you know where money comes from and how the business works. <laughs> it's like, the, it's like that scene in network, you know, where it's like, <laughs> yeah. this is how it works. And it's like, oh, it was like a revelation for me. Right. Well, yeah. And, uh, he, he, one of the things the guy said, he said, you know, and we can set up this company. we set up that company. We can get uh, partnership agreements. We can get band agreements. We can do this and that. And he says, but at the end of the day, none of these stuff will save you from, you know, potential, legal problems, either amongst right. yourselves or a manager or a record company or whatever. So you kind of have to sort of just go on faith, you know, at a certain point. So we kind of did the bare minimum legal wise and just sort of, sort of, uh, uh, relied on, on people acting in good faith. Uh, and that and worked out. Yeah. I would say by and large it did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah.
0: Because it's so easy to get, once you get tied up in that sort of Gordian knot of legal crap, then it just, it it sucks the life out of your career it can anyways, right?
1: Oh yeah. There's no question about it. I mean, it's, and it's like, you know, once again, you're down to kind of limited time and, and shelf life or however you want to put it and to be put on the shelf for, you know, one or two or three years is uh, it's, that would be uh, it could be death.
0: Yeah. Because the other thing I noticed about your timeline, so then you got off of Sony and you went to True North Records.
1: Yeah, so, right. Well, we did, Yeah, you know, we did one record with uh, Red, which is a, a Sony um, kind of wholly owned subsidiary okay. of that. And, yeah. and we did a record and we released it in England and toured on that in England, just like we do. Hmm. And, uh, and then we did with True North, um, yeah, with uh, Bernie uh, Finkelstein.
0: Yeah and and then, that's his name
1: right yeah yeah uh, yes it is yeah because i kind of missed it with danny finkelman that's completely different from CBC. so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and bernie 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 loved bernie and he you know total energy had the whole thing going and then he had a big heart episode mm. uh just <laughs> it was another bad timing thing for everybody especially for him yeah on uh, the release of that that our first record on what's yes to everything uh, yeah. great record I uh, what is 2005
0: I'm going to guess that's somewhere in that period, and yeah.
1: we still play with uh, easy to love quite up is the first yeah. song on that record and it's, it's in our set you know a third of the time or half the time yeah and it has lots of great songs really proud of that uh yeah. Warren Livesey, uh a great producer did it with us hey. and you know
0: that's and where where did you record that
1: uh, mostly in Vancouver um, okay. yeah we we had um at the time we had our own recording studio yeah. um we'd taken some of our our hootie bucks um <laughs> and uh we had a place on uh, so west third or west second just kind of a Kitsilano meets granville island in vancouver and yeah. uh we bought a bunch of gear and it was actually katie lang i was using it before us so it was all oh, set nice. up it had like a yeah it had uh isolation and it had a control room and, you know, three panes cool. of glass. And, yeah. um, so we made a couple little changes there. We brought in some natural light and some stuff like that we brought in a, cool. you know, climate stuff yeah. and a bunch of gear. And, and we did a bunch of records there. We did, uh, some Sony yeah. records there. We did, uh, uh, the casual viewing record and yeah. And so we were, yeah. that was kind of where we did most of our recording at that point.
0: The, the latest one is the El McCombo records. What's the deal with that?
1: Uh, so, but that's a good question. Cool. <laughs> it's ongoing. Yeah, okay, uh, that's Mike Michael Weckerly. I mean, you know who, who's um, who is Michael Weckerly, a uh, Weck, affectionately yeah. known as Weck, um, yeah. uh, who's you know had success in various parts of his uh, working life and uh, has a passion for music. Uh, loves our band. We met him in I don't know, I'd say ten years ago, something like that. And kind of we we hang out a little bit, and then yeah, he 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 bought uh, El Macombo, you know, put his you know thirty million bucks into it or whatever he did forty, yep. wow. <laughs> and he's made it something which is going to last, you know, outlast all of us, cool. uh, and yeah, something which is I think great for the city of Toronto and the Canadian music scene. It's an iconic uh, nightclub. Oh. and uh and they say well let's you know let's just expand this and so el Combo records so we did uh, a couple of releases with him we have also one in the can which is ready to go nice. and, and uh yeah so that's that's where we are with with that
0: oh very cool and you're still based on the west coast and you're playing the commodore i see coming up here and so you, you guys have been really consistent and really prolific over the years like you've never taken your foot off the gas it doesn't seem like
1: yeah so that we're very much a what's next kind of of uh, uh, what's next Creative create a force we'll call ourselves. Yeah. And uh, so it's, and we don't spend a lot of time, uh, you know, c- contemplating, uh, you know, uh, our past, right? We, yeah. we, we, we want to move forward.
0: Yeah, no, that's cool. So I have to ask, what would you change looking back if you had to do something different, you know, you, maybe your managers, the bandmates, the, how things were handled, is there anything that you would change if you could go? Yeah. On? So uh,
1: no, not really, you know, okay. uh, be- because you know, you, you have to, uh, you, you have to have a bit of a fatalistic attitude, right. Uh, uh, um, I, you know, it's some ways I go, we had, we had enough success to keep going but not too much success that, that it tore us apart. Right. So, um, so for that, I'm, I'm, I'm quite grateful. Right. So it's, it's, uh, there's many ways for things to come to an end. Right. And so, and, you know, Neil and I were, we were mostly about sort of keeping, keeping going, (laughs) yeah. what we do is its own reward. So, uh, that's the way we look at it. Dan, I couldn't have said it any better.
0: Many thanks to Brad Merritt for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his life in the music business. More information is available at 5440.com, and they're also very active on Facebook as well, 5440. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Disks Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.